Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to South Valley Community Church. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I wanted to start today um, with confession time. Uh, how many of you have a TV show that you love that technically is about something really boring, but you still just can't stop watching it anyway? So, so we got one who knows right away what I'm talking about. The rest of you might need a little bit of explanation. I'm talking about shows like the shows on TLC and HGTV where like, it's about purchasing defunct storage units, but you can't stop watching it. You know what I'm talking about now? Or all of the shows about pawn shops, or that one show that my wife loves where really polite British people compete to bake like tarts and cakes and pies. That's a big one. She was watching it the other day and I was like, these are like the most polite competitors I've ever seen in my life. The guy who lost is like, oh, no, I'm really happy for him. It was such a beautiful top that he made. And you're like, I apologize for that accent for anyone who actually has it. Um, so I have one. I have one that's my favorite. It's an HGTV show that takes all of the, the misery and difficulty of purchasing a house and then makes you watch other people do that instead. I'm talking about House Hunters. How many House Hunters people do I have in the room? House Hunters is a show that gets marathons on TV all the time. And a marathon, for those of you who aren't familiar, is when they play the, the same show back-to-back -back for anywhere from like, you know, 12 hours to 15 days, just of one show. And House Hunters, like many shows, is one where like you turn it on for the first time, and in the first five minutes you're like, this is like, this is so dumb, who would watch this? This is boring. And then three hours later you're like, this is not the type of floor plan that Nancy wants. What is the... This isn't an open floor plan, and where's the gas range? Where are all the spaces for entertaining? We all know they have friends, they love to entertain. They need a backyard for their dogs. It gets you, it hooks you in. I love this show. I, I've kind of, I've quit for a while, I haven't been watching it as much, but I had a period of time where if it was on, even if I didn't want to watch it, I had to. Like I'd be scrolling and I'd be like, no, House Hunters is on. Uh. Now, when you watch that show, at least for me, I always wanted to know like what happened to these guys because usually they end up choosing something that you wouldn't have chosen or like, they make like the wrong decision. You go, how did that work out? For those of you who don't already know this, you don't even have to wonder about this anymore because there's also a show on HGTV called House Hunters, Where Are They Now? <laughs> how many of you guys are deep enough into House Hunters that you already knew about that show? Yeah, Noel knows. If you watch House Hunters Renovations, when, where are they now? Which is like, now you're in, just in the matrix of House Hunters world. That's one of the best shows because you get to see how it worked out. They go back to the family that bought the house a few years later and they kind of check in on how's it working. Do they like it? Have they made all the changes they thought they would make? And it's really satisfying to watch. Now here is the paper-thin connection that all of this has to what I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> Ready? Um, when I read the New Testament, especially the letters in the New Testament, I, I often have a feeling of wishing that there was like a house hunters, where are they now, for the church that received that letter. Because there's all this great advice and warnings and rebukes and exhortations that the biblical authors give, and you're left kind of wondering, did they listen to this? Did they learn from it? Did it actually kind of sink in and take effect? And so because we just finished this long series in 1 John um, over the last 12 or 13 weeks, going over this incredible book, we decided to just take today to do a really quick kind of like, where are they now, in a matter of speaking, um, with the church in Asia Minor, where this letter was sent, and see, did they listen? Did they learn from John? Did they get the lessons? What ended up happening? And the amazing thing is because this isn't the last letter in the New Testament written to this region, 
and because we have some historical information about what happened even after the New Testament was finished in this region, we have some answers to these questions. So it's, it's kind of exciting to be able to do this. Now, really quickly, I'm going to go quick because we've been spending a ton of time on all of this over the last few weeks, but just in case you haven't been here, there are three huge themes we've been focusing on in 1 John. They are faith, obedience, and love. It's actually been kind of the subtitle of the series. We've been calling it The Heart of a Father, The Harmony of Faith, Obedience, and Love. And we say the harmony because in this book, John is kind of weaving these three themes together. And he doesn't write in like a linear structure where he's going from point to point. He writes in kind of a symphonic structure where he'll introduce a theme and talk about it and then move away from it. And then just like a symphony, he'll bring that theme back with some variation. And he builds this incredible case for why you need all three of these. When he talks about faith, Like Isaac talked about two weeks ago, it's not just about intellectually affirming something. It's about placing your allegiance, your kind of entrusting yourself to something. And so for John, it's very important that you know what that is and that you have the right idea about it. So you can't be misinformed about who Jesus is, what he did, what he's all about. You have to have the right information about Jesus. You have to get Jesus right, because if you get Jesus wrong, you'll find yourself entrusting yourself to or being loyal to the wrong savior, the wrong king. So faith is a very important theme. Then he talks about obedience, the simple fact of are you doing the things that Jesus has called you to do? These have been some of the most difficult weeks to digest through this series is when John just gets straight forward and says, you say you love God, but you don't do the stuff he tells you to do. What does that say about you? It's a major theme. And then the last one, which is all over this book, is love. And for John, the question is, do you love God and do you love God's people? And over and over throughout the book, he's showing that it's not just having one of these things or it's not kind of having them in different proportions. It's about having all of them woven together into this one package. John's trying to say, this is the Christian life. This is what a church is supposed to look like. Here's just one example from the last chapter of the book where he kind of shows all three of these things in one place. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So you see faith and love there. Then he says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So you guys see how all three of them come together. It's not just, oh, you need to love God. No, you you need to love God. You need to know the truth about God and not get it mixed up. And you need to obey the things that God tells you to do. It's this beautiful harmony. Now, all of that, kind of behind all of that, is this concern that John has over false teachers in Ephesus. Because, or not just Ephesus, but Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And in this area, there was this group of false teachers who we've been calling proto-Gnostic dualists. And it's a fancy-sounding word. All it means is it's an early form of a belief system that would later be called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism boiled down to a really simple level is this idea that you have a good spiritual world and an evil physical world. And the person's goal is to separate themselves from the physical and just be immersed in the spiritual. And then, hey, once you've done that, you can do whatever you want in the physical world. It doesn't even matter, which, of course, led to all kinds of problems. So these proto-Gnostics are teaching false doctrine. And John, over and over again, is saying, watch out for these guys. Here's how you can test against them. And here's how you can filter out the false teaching. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the basic idea of what's going on in this book. Now, the next time in the New Testament that we see a letter being written to this kind of region in the world is actually not what we think of as an epistle. It's the very last book in the New Testament. 
And it's somewhere, you know, a couple of decades within 10 or 20 years of the writing of 1 John. People disagree about the exact date, but it's somewhere in there. The book of the Revelation is written. And the Revelation is this book that is um, very intimidating for many people to read because it's, it's difficult to understand. It's full of symbolism, but it's super, super important. And the amount of overlap you see, especially in the beginning of this book, with the, with the letter of 1 John is, is absolutely incredible. So the Revelation is this kind of prophetic vision. It's called an apocalypse. An apocalypse just means an unveiling. So John, the same guy who wrote the letter of 1 John, he gets a vision from God. And the vision is kind of just an unveiling of what's going on spiritually behind the scenes in the physical world. So he's going, the church is, is dealing with these problems and these difficulties. Here's the spiritual struggle that's happening behind that earthly struggle. And it's prophetic. It's, it's prophecy. And we tend to think of prophecy as just like telling the future or knowing what's going to happen and kind of predicting something that's coming later. And that does happen in prophecy. But a lot of prophecy and a lot of what's happening in the Revelation is actually a diagnosis of what's happening right now. So he does kind of see things that pertain to the future, and a lot of them are very mysterious, but a lot of it, especially in the first couple chapters, is about what's happening in the church at the time that the letter was written. And at that period in history, um, the church was facing a really difficult time. It's towards the end of the first century, and the Roman Empire is putting a lot of pressure on the church. So if you're a Christian, you have pressure coming from multiple areas. You have the Roman Empire telling you, look, you can worship any god you want, you just have to also worship Caesar. You can be a part of your religion, but you also have to be a part of the imperial cult. And that caused a ton of problems for basically two religions, two major religions, which were Christianity and Judaism. Because they're the exclusive religions of the ancient world, and they're the ones saying, no, we can't worship our God and Caesar. We can only worship our God. So there's a ton of pressure coming from Rome. But then there's actually a lot of tension and pressure between Christians and Jews at this time also. Because all the Jewish synagogues in the area were looking at Christianity as this kind of like false, evil, heretical offshoot of Judaism. So there's pressure from, from the Jewish synagogues in their area. There's pressure from Rome. And then as John's letter and the Revelation makes really clear, there's a bunch of false teaching and bad doctrine going around inside the church as well. So it's a difficult time to be a Christian. And this book opens up with seven letters that are written to seven different churches in the region of Asia Minor, which is, like I said, the exact same place as far as we know that John's letter called 1 John was being circulated among these churches. And these letters show that kind of um, the book is being written first and, and foremost to the church in this region. And it's John who is kind of writing down the message, but he's not actually the voice that's speaking. So I always, before we read these letters, I always want to show who exactly it is that's the voice kind of behind this, these letters, because it's incredible. It's the Son of Man. And I want to read his description real quick from Revelation 1, just so you know whose voice it is you're hearing when we get to the letter we're going to read. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You gotta get this picture in your head that this is Jesus speaking, but sort of like I said the last time we talked about Revelation here in church, it's not like just the, the version of Jesus that you're used to from the storybook Bible surrounded by lambs and stuff. This is resurrected, victorious, powerful King Jesus who is giving this message. And so the letters to the seven churches come from this mouth, and John is writing them down. Now, real quick, this will be important later. It says that there are seven golden lampstands, and that Jesus is among these seven lampstands. Here's what it says about those lampstands and those stars in his hand. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you're like, oh my gosh, thank you, Revelation. You just told me straight up what something is for once because the book's gonna go on with a bunch of crazy symbols and um, scholars will argue about them from then until now. But this one, it's just straightforward. Now, there is a little bit of disagreement about the angel's language because angel, that word just means messenger. And typically in the New Testament, it does mean kind of like the spiritual, angelic messenger, the way we typically think about it. But it could also mean a human messenger. A lot of scholars, and I actually tend to kind of follow this interpretation, think that that messenger is a symbol for the human leader of these seven churches, the human leaders. Um, but it's not super important. The bottom line is they represent the churches. And the lampstands that Jesus is in the midst of are those seven churches. So they are, they're these representatives, and um, yeah, we could talk about why the symbol of a lampstand is important, but we're not going to. I'm going to hold back. So these seven letters depict um, a very realistic church, a church that's struggling, like I said, with division from inside, with pressure from outside, and with false teaching, and it's a difficult time to be a Christian. And as we're reading this, I want you to see that this is not like a foreign idea for the modern church. And think about it, does that sound familiar to you, to read about a church that's struggling with pressure from the society on the outside, with pressure from other religions, with pressure specifically over the fact that you want to exclusively worship Jesus only and no one else? And then there's false doctrine in the church. This is a familiar setting. Now, I wish we had time to look at every single one of these seven letters because they, they actually kind of paint a pretty amazing picture of what's going on in Asia Minor at this time, but we don't have time to do that. And the first one has kind of the most important, I think, message and the most overlap with 1 John, and that's a letter to a city called Ephesus, or church in a city called Ephesus, rather. And Ephesus, it's, if we're gonna just do one, this is the one to do. It's the first of the seven letters, and it's a very important city and a very important church. This is kind of one of the, the premier churches in the ancient world, especially in Asia Minor. It got planted by Paul the Apostle, so you got a really important, powerful church planter. A few years later, it's going to be pastored by Timothy, who's kind of like Paul's number one main guy. We also know that it's, at some point, Apollos, this brilliant orator and brilliant speaker and teacher that we learn about in Acts and a couple other letters, he ends up in Ephesus teaching. So there, it's kind of this like awesome central church and there's a really good chance that the other churches in this area were kind of taking their cues from Ephesus and that they were planted out of Ephesus because this was such a central church to the early apostles and kind of their mission work. And Ephesus is a really interesting city too. It's a super important and wealthy port city and port cities in the ancient world, just like they are today, to be honest with you, were really kind of, of, of great cultural importance and great economic importance in the whole region. So Ephesus was the central key location. 
And it also had something amazing in it that uh, has kind of wowed people for thousands of years. It's called the Temple of Artemis. I mean, you guys have heard of the Temple of Artemis. Artemis is a goddess who's also known as Diana. That's her Roman name. She's Artemis in Greek, Diana to the Romans. And this is what her temple remains look like today. Still pretty impressive, but here's an artist rendering of what they might have looked like at the time that this letter is being written. Pretty incredible. It had 120 or more columns like you see there. It's this massive temple structure. And what I want you to picture is being a Christian in a city where that's in your backyard. This is kind of like the main worship of your city. And Artemis was worshipped kind of throughout all of Asia Minor, but Ephesus had this like, because they had this temple, they had a special claim on her. She was kind of like their local chief deity. In fact, the gospel, if you read in the book of Acts, the gospel coming to Ephesus originally causes major drama because of all of the commerce surrounding the temple of Artemis. There was a silversmith who causes all kinds of drama because he hears the gospel and goes, if people start believing this, they're going to stop buying my silver statues of Artemis. He causes a riot. It's just central, of central importance. It's not super clear exactly how people worshipped Artemis, like what their rituals were, but we get a little bit of a clue from a quote from this ancient Greek um, historian and philosopher named Heraclitus. He said, um, there is more morality to be found among the animals than the humans in Ephesus. So he's something about what was happening there. And this is an Ephesian. He's from Ephesus, and he's not a Christian, not a Jew, not religious. He's a Greek philosopher. And he said, there's more morality to be found among animals than the people of Ephesus. Pretty crazy. So it's a difficult place to be a Christian. These are the people who get the letter from John, and they're the people who get the letter of the Revelation. And so when you read this letter, what Jesus has to say to this church, I want you to have this in mind, this incredible amount of pressure that this church was under to conform. Here's what Jesus says to them. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, first half of the letter, super positive. Super positive. And opens up with the words of him. And that's kind of the Greek way to say, thus saith, or thus says, which in the Old Testament always introduces the words of either God or a king. So you're getting a royal pronouncement. This isn't just like a letter written from friend to friend. This is King Jesus, resurrected. Remember that description. Face shining like the sun. His word comes out of his mouth like a sword. He says, thus saith, the words of the one who holds the seven stars, which are the angels, right? And the first things he says are incredibly positive and, and uh, honestly impressive about the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And then he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he says, even in the midst of all of this cultural difficulty that you're facing, all of this kind of religious extreme danger that you're surrounded by, this pressure from society, you guys are bearing up. You're enduring. You're not a weak church. You're not a church that's just letting stuff go by. You are continuing to do good works for my name's sake. In other words, when it comes to obedience, which is one of John's main themes in the letter that he wrote 10 or 15 years before this, church in Ephesus is doing good. They're doing the right thing even against incredible pressure. So score one, doing great. He also says, whoops, 
He also says, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Again, when it comes to faith and obedience, we see perfect tens across the board. Ephesus has learned how to discern who a false teacher is. If you remember from 1 John, the series we were just doing, in chapter 4, John has this incredible uh, section where he talks about testing the spirits. And it's actually about testing teachers, testing teachings, and seeing if they are true or false. And he basically lays out these criteria. He says, what do they say about Jesus? And do they follow the teachings of the apostles or not? He says, if they don't, reject it. It's not true teaching. And you read this here and you go, okay. So a decade or two later, they've got that one down. They're doing it. Look, they've, they've learned to test. Same word John uses, the false teachers, and they're identifying the false ones. They're keeping their church safe from false teaching. Pretty impressive, right? So in terms of faith and obedience, the church in Ephesus is doing great. They're killing it. It's not a lazy church. It's not a weak church. It's not a fluff church with like weak teachings where they're letting false teaching bleed in. No, they're, they are protecting the flock from the influences that are on the outside. And they're doing that in a very difficult situation. So right off the bat, you're like, man, two out of three. Ephesus is doing awesome. They've got, they've got honestly, in our culture, in my view, they've kind of got what you would think of as the most important two, right? Because they're, they're not putting up with false teaching. They're protecting the flock. They're like doctrinal watchdogs who aren't letting anything sneak past. And so if you stopped here, you'd be like, okay, good news. The church in Ephesus is doing great. But that's only half of what Jesus says to him. Here's the second half. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So even in the kind of rebuke section, Ephesus gets props again for like not putting up with false teaching. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. How many of you guys, when you read that, you're immediately curious about who the Nicolaitans are, by the way? Bad news, nobody knows. <laughs> Set you guys up. No, really, no one knows exactly who these people are, but it's crystal clear from the context. They're false teachers that are teaching something that Jesus does not approve. And the church in Ephesus, like they seem to be doing with all false teaching and bad doctrine, they're not putting up with that stuff. They go, no, we're, we're not standing for that. But, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And there's a lot of debate among scholars who read this book about whether or not uh, Jesus here is talking about love for God or love for other people. And you can read commentaries and get like really long arguments about both of them. But because we have been studying the book of 1 John, we know that that's not really an argument worth having. Because John, over and over and over again, has been teaching that if you love God, then you necessarily also love other Christians. If you love God, you love your brothers and sisters, period. He says it over and over and over again. Here's just one example. If anyone says, this is from 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I mean, how much more straightforward <laughs> can you get than that? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So for John, that's just one example. It's all over the book. But for John, loving God and loving God's children, loving other Christians, loving your brothers and sisters, this is not two separate ideas. 
You can't do one without the other. They're like inextricably bound up together, and you can't just separate them. So I'm completely convinced that when Jesus says, you've lost the love you had at first, he doesn't have to be more specific than that. Because this community knows that if you love God, you love his children too. And Jesus says, that's what you're lacking. You're lacking in love. Love for God, love for others. It's interesting that he says the love you had at first. Um, we have quite a few newer Christians in our community here, which is super awesome. It's, it's so important for us to have that because for most people, this isn't true for everyone, but for most people, when you first become a Christian, when you first fall in love with Jesus and understand what he has done for you and how much grace he has shown you, it causes this response. There's like this fire that gets lit in you and you're kind of fearless when it comes to sharing about Jesus or, or talking about him or expressing your love for him. It's just bubbling out of you and it can't be stopped. That's how most new Christians are. And then for a lot of people, and again, thank God this doesn't happen every single time, but for a lot of people, after they've been Christians for a long time, like, like me, that fire kind of dwindles and, and gets smaller and it's, it becomes more of a chore, more of a discipline to show love to other Christians, to express your love for God. So Jesus says, you have to remember and repent when he says repent, it doesn't mean, like, feel bad about it. Repent means change something. It means turn around. It means identify what you are doing and do something different. And so he says, you have to remember that love that you had at first and turn and do that again. And that's why, for me, I feel like it's so important for us to have newer Christians in our community who can remind us of the love that we had at first. It's infectious. And it's scary, because look at the threat. Look at how serious this threat is. He says, if not, remember this is risen Jesus talking, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Remember the lampstand. The lampstand is, it's the church itself. It's the church's empowerment from God to be a church. He says, if you don't get this together, I'm taking it. So if you're reading this as a modern Christian, you, you know, your natural reaction, my natural reaction is to go, okay, well, the church in Ephesus is doing pretty good. They got John's letter. There's three kind of big themes there, including the false teacher thing, and they've got two out of three of them right, and they're kind of the ones that we value the most. They're, they're doctrinal watchdogs. They're keeping safe from the outside. They just got to get this together. And honestly, I really wish that this sermon was going to end with me telling you guys, and guess what? The church in Ephesus got it together. They got the letter from Jesus in the Revelation and they said, oh man, we gotta get this love thing together. We have to repent and turn back to the love we had at first. And they did that and so the church flourished and to this day there's a vibrant, growing community in Ephesus serving and following Jesus. But that is absolutely not at all what happened. And it's, uh, it made it honestly, to, just to be completely honest with you guys, it made this a really painful um, sermon to study for this week. Because what happened in Ephesus, as far as we can tell, after the Revelation isn't Happy isn't good news. Ephesus, in the first century, they get their letter from John, and it's pretty clear that by the time of the Revelation, they've got that doctrinal solidity, they've got solid doctrine, they're kind of safe from the outside. But then if you fast forward another hundred years, their lack of love has caused them to disintegrate. All the writings that come from Ephesus by the second and third century, hundred years later, they're all Gnostic. And they're mostly commentaries on John's letters. And for those of you who, who kind of forgot, remember, who are the Gnostics? 
They're the false teachers that John was warning the church about in the first place. Something happened, and it's not crystal clear in history what it was, but something happened to where by the second century, the writings coming out, they're, they're writings from the very false teachers that John had been warning the church about. And it seems as if the church there kind of limped along for a while more in Ephesus, and then um, by the fourth, fifth, sixth century, there's no church in Ephesus at all. It's gone. And to this day, there isn't one. Asia Minor as a whole um, kind of continued to have some kind of Christian presence for a little bit longer, but if you fast forward all the way 2,000 more years to today, um, it's Turkey. For those of you who, who aren't familiar with Turkey, it's one of the least Christian places on the planet. Right now, there's less than 0.2% Christians, 0.2% of the population are Christians in Turkey. And that's, I mean, that's like way down since 50 years ago. But even 50 years ago, it was like 19% or something, which is great for that part of the world, by the way. But uh, you can see the decline in the fact that what happened at Ephesus ended up being, to some extent, a precursor for what happened everywhere else. And this, to me, this is like a, a terrifying cautionary tale for the church anywhere, but especially the church here in the United States, especially the church here in the Bay Area. This story should scare you. It scares me. And I think there's three kind of main reasons why it ought to scare you. The first one is the strength of the foundation that this church had. Remember we talked about it at the beginning. Who planted this church? Paul, the Apostle Paul. That guy wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. He was their church planter. Later on, they get Timothy. Later on, they get letters from Paul, letters from John. Apollos comes and teaches there. Then they get a letter from the mouth of Jesus at the end of the New Testament. And it's not enough. By the way, as a quick side note, um, all of those things, we have all of those things too. I mean, Paul didn't plant this church. Eric's a great guy, but I'm not going to say that Paul planted this church. <laughs> but we have all of those same letters, right? It's not enough. The second reason this scares me is because when I read about the historical context in Ephesus at this point in history, it sounds so familiar to me, right? It sounds like just all of this ideological, spiritual pressure being exerted on the church. And the reason that's scary is because of the third reason, which is the source of the destruction of the church in Ephesus. Because when I hear, um, including myself, I'll include myself in this, but when I hear Christians talk about what they're worried about, kind of what's scary or like just in general what's on their mind, it's always the stuff out there. It's always, look at what's happening to the world. Look at movies today. Look at music today and TV and what they're teaching in schools and in universities. We have to be safe from this. We have to protect ourselves from this. And I think that's true, just to be clear. I think we have to do that. And the church in Ephesus was doing a really great job at that, right? But when it came down to it, is what killed the church of Ephesus out there? No, man. It was, it was in here and in here. They lost the love they had at first. They were safe from the stuff on the outside. They got the temple of Diana in their backyard. That's not what killed the church. Christians give Satan way, way, way too much credit about stuff like this. You look at that story and go, oh, Satan got into the church and killed it. No, you know who killed the church in Ephesus? Who took the lampstand away? Jesus. The love they had at first. It's terrifying. Because we can be 
concerned and worried and on the defense, which we are and we should be. Doctrine is important. It's crucial to guard against false teaching. It's crucial to guard against the kind of moral decay of society. We do have to protect ourselves from that, but it's not enough. And at the end of the day, the church in Ephesus crumbles even when they're so well guarded against that because of the lack of love inside the church. They didn't love Jesus the way they did at first. They didn't love each other the way they did at first. Um, I was talking to Jacob Serpa, who leads our young adults ministry here, about this kind of idea earlier this week. And he goes, I am Ephesus. And I thought that was like so powerful because I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm real focused on doctrine, real focused on Bible, real focused on being aware of what's going on so that we can protect against it. But man, how much conscious effort and energy am I putting into to cultivating that fire that has honestly, over the last you know, 30 years, it's grown dimmer. So real quick, the first thing I wanna say about this um, is something real practical. I think we have, to, we have to think about these things for ourselves and for our community. John has kind of shown these three main themes of faith, obedience, and love. And I want to ask you guys to reflect for yourself, for your family, for your small group, and ultimately for your church, which for most of you is us, by the way. I know there's probably some visitors from different churches. You're welcome. There's probably people here um, who aren't following Jesus at all. You're just kind of checking the Christian thing out. Um, Welcome. We love having you here. Um, If this is your first time, it's not always this depressing, I promise you. (laughs) Um, But for those of you who are Christians, I want you to consider... Where am I strong in these? Where am I weak? And then the third question is so crucial because the last thing I want this to be is, is a, an opportunity for you to like tear yourself down or tear your church down or tear your small group leader down. I want you to ask this question, where are we strong, where are we weak, and then most importantly, what can be done about it? How can I contribute to fixing this? Because guys, this, the scary story of Ephesus is that um, even though I believe that the church, like with a capital C, is that a C for you guys? That's a C for you guys, right? It's very important that we get this right. (laughs) The church, the capital C church, the people of God all over the world, I believe that is invincible. But Ephesus shows us that lowercase c churches are not. And ultimately, when, when you lose the love you had at first, when you lose that passion to love and care for each other and to love Jesus, the thing that's going to undo your church is Jesus could decide, I'm taking the lampstand. So this is very, very important to us here at South Valley that we do this work, that we stop and think, where are we strong? Where has God blessed us with kind of a natural strength? Where are we weak? And what can be done by me, the individual, to kind of strengthen this community? But I I don't want you to think, in fact, honestly, the, the last thing in the world that I want you to think is that I'm trying to teach that it is by your own strength or kind of by your willpower or your ability to kind of change this stuff that we can succeed or that we can be victorious. I, I actually believe exactly the opposite of that. And I think the hint that that's not the case is hidden at the end of the letter that Jesus wrote to Ephesus. First of all, after saying remember and repent, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that shows you this letter is not just for the church in Ephesus, right? You see this all over the book of Revelation, this emphasis on, no, the church needs to see this. So whoever's listening, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then he says, to the one who conquers, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That tree of life at the beginning of the Bible, it's in the Garden of Eden, and at the very end of the Bible, it's in the new creation, what we kind of commonly call heaven in the church. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That word conquer is all over the New Testament. Um, Particularly, it's all over the book of Revelation. Um, It's a Greek word, nikao, and it doesn't always get translated conquer. A lot of the time, it gets translated overcome. And in that translation, with that particular word, you see it over and over and over again in 1 John. And those of you who have been coming here for this whole series, you might be starting to think of some of those verses, some of those key texts in 1 John where he talks about overcoming. Here's one example. John said, using the exact same word that Jesus just used for conquer, he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Remember, both faith and beliefs in this, in this verse, as we talked about two weeks ago, it does not just mean intellectually acknowledging something. It means entrusting yourself to something, owing your allegiance to something, your loyalty. So he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's one crazy verse. There's another one that happens one verse before this, or sorry, one chapter before this, where John says, talking about false teachers, he says, you have already, nikao, overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He says, you already have overcome them. And here he says something really similar. Who is it that overcomes the world? It's, it's your faith. It's the one who believes in Jesus. Now, how on earth can John write a letter to a church that is still surrounded by all of this pressure and danger and persecution from every side and within and say, you have already overcome the world as if it already happened. And I believe the hint for that is in something that Jesus says in John's gospel using, again, this exact same word. And John, um, he wrote this letter. He also wrote the Gospel of John, which is a biography of the life of Jesus. And in that book, in chapter 16, Jesus says this, He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I think it's so cool, you know, you can just picture this verse, Jesus after resurrecting from the dead, he's on the mountaintop talking to his disciples, he's about to ascend into heaven and he says, I have overcome the world, right? Except that's actually not when Jesus says that. This is the craziest thing. Jesus says this, And you super Bible nerds saw that it was chapter 16 and you're like, I think the pastor's about to get something wrong right now. No, Jesus says this the night that he gets betrayed, the night that he gets handed over to this illegal court hearing and gets convicted of crimes he didn't do, gets beaten, tortured, and nailed to a cross and killed. He says this right before that happens. And he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Already did it. And I'm convinced it's because Jesus knows that on the other side of his tribulation, on the other side of his suffering, pain, and anguish, and eventual death, that there's something else coming, that it's not the final word. Death and suffering and pain is not going to have the final word over Jesus. He knows he's going to be victorious. And he's right, and he does. And so when John says, Christians, you, by your faith, you have already overcome, he's saying the same thing. 
that because of the victory of Jesus, even if you still are surrounded by pressure and danger and difficulty, even if there's already horrible forces from society, from within the church and from outside the church, forcing in on you and pushing you and making your life difficult, on the other side of that, there is a victory that has already been secured because Jesus has already been victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And for those who are in Christ, what's true of Jesus is true of you. His victory is your victory. So John can say with confidence, you're gonna keep struggling, you're gonna keep fighting, you're gonna have difficulty and pain and tribulation, but if you are in Christ, you have already overcome. How? By faith. Completely convinced that everything from beginning to end, from the moment that you come to faith in Jesus to every single triumph, to your ability to have the faith, obedience, and love all in the right balance, all of it, all of it is grace. It's not your hard work. Sometimes it feels like that. But Paul would say, I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't me. It was Christ in me. Because he knew, where do you get the strength? Where do you get the power to overcome? Where do you get the ability to have that faith, obedience, and love in balance? You get it by abiding in Jesus. It's grace from top to bottom. It's grace the whole time. Now, that doesn't mean you sit back and just kind of like go, well, the grace is going to carry me through this. In real life, it feels a lot like hard work. But where do you draw the power? Where do you draw the ability to do that from? You abide in Jesus. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. How do you bear fruit? The branch abides in the vine. So my encouragement to you today is that this, there's this balance we have to hold between the, the power and sovereignty of God and the human responsibility that we see over and over again in the Bible to respond to that and do something. We have to find that balance. We have to fight to have that faith, obedience, and love, but to not think that we'll ever be able to do it on our own strength. So I think if you combine what Jesus said in his letter and what John said in his letter, we should remember, repent, and abide. Remember who you are. Remember what it meant to you, the, the moment you realized the grace of God. Remember that love and passion, and then repent, make a change. Turn from what you were doing, do something else, and ultimately, you abide in the victory of Jesus. His victory is your victory. You cannot conquer Satan, sin, and death. You can't. Jesus already did 2,000 years ago. And you, you get victory, you overcome, you conquer by abiding in that king, abiding in that victory. And I'm convinced that if, if we can do this, then man, when Jesus comes back, whenever that is, there will be a church in Gilroy, there will be a church in California, there will be a church in the United States that a, a future generation of Christians isn't gonna look back and go, yeah, they had a really strong start but then it all fell apart, and now today there's 0.2% Christians there. I don't want that to be the story of the church in America. So let's do this. Let's remember where we came from. Let's repent of our failures, and let's abide in Jesus. I, I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to close um, by singing a song that gives us the opportunity to, to do this. It's a very reflective song. It's a very powerful song. and song that... Um, it gives you the opportunity to do a few different things, actually. The very first verse of the song gives you an opportunity to remember the greatness and power of God, specifically in, in kind of the act of creation. And the second verse gives you an opportunity to acknowledge your own failure, to remember that, that Jesus had to die for you because you're not perfect, because you're broken. The third verse gives you the opportunity to 
remember the salvation of Jesus and to let it kind of propel you forward into the way you live your life. And then finally, we finish the song by over and over again declaring our intention to follow, our intention to stand for Jesus, our intention to do our part. Again, you guys, I'm completely convinced that the only way we can do that is by finding our rest and our victory and our salvation in Jesus, not in yourself, not in your own strength. Let's pray. Father, I'm, um, I remember later on in Revelation in chapter 12, um, you t- it says that, that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and their testimony. It's so important, God. I need to be reminded of that. So when I feel like I'm failing, my, my gut instinct is to, well, I gotta try harder, I gotta work harder. Um, and, and I know sometimes it feels like that, but I have to have it clear, God, we have to have it clear that it is, it is the blood of the lamb that conquers. And we are, we are only victorious when we abide in that, when we lean into that grace, when we lean into that victory that's already happened. And so Father, I pray that today, um, those of us in the room who believe in you, I pray that we would be challenged to push ourselves, to push our community in the areas that we're weak, whether it's faith, obedience, or love, I pray that you would help us to remember the love that we had at first, especially the the brothers and sisters in the room who've known you for a long time. And God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, that you would reveal to them the incredible gift of your sacrifice, of how you on the cross in this upside-down, unexpected way defeated and dethroned death itself so that we don't have to. Lord, make this a church that will last. Make this a church that will be here when you return, strong and rooted in you and your salvation. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing together. You stood before